Hello there and welcome. I'm Dan, the Story Man, and this is the 10th episode of our podcast. I want to talk to you today first about folktales. We'll take up another topic later on, but first, folktales are really where storytelling got its start. In the times before written history, and really before literacy was widespread throughout the world, folktales were the way that history and traditions, and values, were passed down from one generation to the next. That's how you knew that your fifth great-grandfather, for example, uh, killed a bear with only his hands, maybe, right? That story would be passed down. Or, as another example, in the tradition of the southern Paiute Native Americans of the Great Basin, it's how you knew that following the creation of the world, the ocean grandmother brought forth a heavy sack onto the land, the contents of which the coyote, Shinangwav, spread all over the earth and became the various peoples of the world. Stories that were passed down verbally from one generation to the next became important because that's one of the ways that culture was transmitted to a new generation. If you lived in ancient Rome, you needed to know the stories of the ancient Roman gods and heroes if you were going to fit into society and have the same values that the other Romans did and behave like the other Romans did, right? The verbal telling of stories was a major way that this cultural information was passed on. So storytelling became a way of creating and reinforcing identity through time. Do you know stories that are told in your family? Stories that help you know who you are and what you value? Give that some thought. Many such stories were, of course, totally fictitious, and some were based on truth, at least initially. As time went by, many of those stories became more elaborate and more convoluted, and you end up in a place where it's hard to untangle fact from fiction. In our families nowadays, we might have what we call big fish stories, right? Where the details seem to get more elaborate and embellished as time goes by. Even when the stories are not true, or are less true than made up, they often serve this same important function of transmitting values and teaching some kind of moral lesson, while simultaneously stimulating the imagination. Now, some folktales, honestly, don't even really teach a lesson so much as they exist just for fun, right? And some of them are just downright weird, or at least they seem that way to us in modern times. Today, just for fun, I want to read three short folktales or fables to you. The first of these will be The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse by Aesop who was a Greek storyteller in the 6th century BC, or BCE, and whose fables are now famous the world over. Let's do it. Here is that story. The Town Mouse and the Country Mouse by Aesop. A town mouse once visited a relative who lived in the country. For lunch, the country mouse served wheat stalks, roots, and acorns, with a dash of cold water for drink. The town mouse ate very sparingly, nibbling a little of this and a little of that, 
and by her manner making it very plain that she ate the simple food only to be polite. After the meal, the friends had a long talk, or, rather, the town mouse talked about her life in the city while the country mouse listened. Then they went to bed in a cozy nest in the hedgerow and slept in quiet comfort until morning. In her sleep, the country mouse dreamed she was a town mouse, with all the luxuries and delights of city life that her friend had described for her. So the next day, when the town mouse asked the country mouse to go home with her to the city, she gladly said yes. When they reached the mansion in which the town mouse lived, they found the table in the dining room full of the leavings of a very fine banquet. There were sweetmeats and jellies, pastries, delicious cheeses, indeed the most tempting foods that a mouse could imagine. But just as the country mouse was about to nibble a dainty bit of pastry, she heard a cat meow loudly and scratch at the door. In great fear, the mice scurried to a hiding place, where they lay quite still for a long time, hardly daring to breathe. When at last they ventured back to the feast, the door opened suddenly, and in came the servants to clear the table, followed by the house dog. The country mouse stopped in the town mouse's den only long enough to pick up her carpet bag and umbrella. "'You may have luxuries and dainties that I have not,' she said as she hurried away. "'But I prefer my plain food and simple life in the country, with the peace and security that go with it.'" That's the end of that short little fable. Did you catch the moral of the story? Aesop, though we know little about him, purportedly lived at a time when many of the ancient civilizations of the Mediterranean world were starting to reach their peak. The change in population and demographics meant there was a greater sense of difference between the growing urban city landscapes, like places of, say, Athens, for example, and the people living in the countryside. Just as it is today, the cities felt much busier and noisier than the country. Aesop's moral for the tale is, essentially, that a poor country life offers more satisfaction and security than a luxurious but possibly turbulent city life. Let's take a look at our next story. So this one comes from the Brothers Grimm, who, like Aesop, were famous for fables and folktales. Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were German academics, and they lived in the 19th century AD, or CE, and are credited with penning such famous tales as Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Rapunzel, and Hansel and Gretel. As you might guess, Walt Disney had a strong appreciation for their work, right? Many of the Grimm brothers' original stories were a little bit dark and cruel and violent, and the Grimm brothers themselves and later artists who depicted their stories did clean them up and lighten them up a little bit in later years. But even as dark stories, the tales were meant to convey not only whimsy and imagination, but moral lessons as well. Now today I'm going to share with you one of their stories that is a little lesser known and to an extent a bit more unusual. This story depicts three characters, a mouse, a bird, 
and a sausage. Yes, you heard that right. All three, the mouse, the bird, and the sausage are active, sentient characters with human reasoning powers. I share with you now their story. The Mouse, the Bird, and the Sausage by Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm Once upon a time, a mouse, a bird, and a sausage formed a partnership. They kept house together, and for a long time they lived in peace and prosperity, acquiring many possessions. The bird's task was to fly into the forest each day to fetch wood. The mouse carried water, made the fire, and set the table. The sausage did the cooking. Whoever is too well off always wants to try something different. Thus, one day, the bird chanced to meet another bird, who boasted to him of his own situation. This bird criticized him for working so hard, while the other two seemingly enjoyed themselves at home. For after the mouse had made the fire and carried the water, she could sit in the parlor and rest until it was time for her to set the table. The sausage had only to stay by the pot, watching the food cook. When mealtime approached, she would slither through the porridge or the vegetables, and thus everything was greased and salted and ready to eat. The bird would bring his load of wood home. They would eat their meal and then sleep soundly until the next morning. It was a great life. But the next day, because of his friend's advice, the bird refused to go to the forest, saying that he had been the servant of the other two long enough. He was no longer going to be a fool for them. Everyone should try a different task for a change. The mouse and the sausage argued against this, but the bird was the master, and he insisted that they give it a try. The sausage was to fetch wood. The mouse became the cook, and the bird was to carry water. And what was the result? The sausage trudged off toward the forest, the bird made the fire, and the mouse put on the pot and waited for the sausage to return with wood for the next day. However, the sausage stayed out so long that the other two feared that something bad had happened. The bird flew off to see if he could find her. A short distance away he came upon a dog that had seized the sausage as free booty and was making off with her. The bird complained bitterly to the dog about this brazen abduction, but the dog claimed that he had discovered forged letters on the sausage and that she would thus have to forfeit her life to him. Filled with sorrow, the bird carried the wood home himself and told the mouse what he had seen and heard. They were very sad but were determined to stay together and make the best of it. The bird set the table while the mouse prepared the food. She jumped into the pot, as the sausage had always done, in order to slither and weave in and about the vegetables and grease them. But before she reached the middle, her hair and skin were scalded off and she perished. When the bird wanted to eat, no cook was there. Beside himself, he threw the wood this way and that, called out, looked everywhere, but no cook was to be found. Because of his carelessness, the scattered wood caught fire, and the entire house was soon aflame. The bird rushed to fetch water, but the bucket fell into the well, carrying the bird with it, and he drowned. 
How did you like that cheerful little story? While the notion of changing things up and casting off traditional roles in favor of something new and innovative is good and laudable to us, the moral of this story hones in on the idea that when we try to be something we're not, the results can be trouble. That's what the Brothers Grimm were kind of wanting to convey, right? And that may indeed be true. It's a sad story and a little gruesome, but who knows? It may be a full feature-length Disney film someday. Our final story is a fun, old, traditional story that needs a little explanation. This story comes from Scotland and is titled The Brownie of Fernidon. To understand it, you need to know what we're talking about when we use the word brownie in this context. In Scottish folklore, a brownie or brownie is almost something like a goblin, one that maybe has a mean temper, but also is quite good at domestic work. Some people speculate that the notion of a house elf, as found in the Harry Potter series by J.K. Rowling, is inspired by the Scottish notion of a brownie. So I'm going to read to you the story of the Brownie O'Fernadon. One more quick note of explanation. I'm going to attempt to read the story using a Scottish accent. Now, this is not with the intent to make fun or make light of Scottish culture. I am truly attempting to be respectful while still having some fun. A number of my own ancestors are Scottish, and I like to hope that they would appreciate my attempt to try and be more like them. I think the story has a little bit more native flair when it's read that way. So, here's the story without further ado. The Bruni of Fernidon. Long ago there was a farm known as Fernidon. It took its name from the den, or the glen, filled with ferns that lay all round the farm. Anyone visiting the farm had to pass through the glen. And that was a problem because in the glen there lived a brownie. And everyone knew, or thought they knew, that the brownie was dangerous. How? Well, no one was really sure. Apparently he appeared only at night, a dark shadow of a creature. Now the farmer of Fernidon and his wife did not fear the brownie. In fact, they considered him a great friend and their best farmhand. The farmer was getting older and less able to care for all the tasks around the farm by himself, so he often had to leave work half done round the farm or in the barn, and to his delight and satisfaction, in the morning the work was done and done well too. As for the farmer's wife, she counted on the brownie to help with the laundry and the cooking and the garden. The farmer and his wife had heard that brownies do not like to be paid for their work. In fact, they find it insulting. So they rewarded the brownie in the best way they knew. Every night before she went to bed, the farm wife left a bowl of fresh milk for the brownie. She made sure to use their nicest bowl and the freshest, tastiest milk, and she even added a bit of cream to the top. In the morning, the bowl was empty and the work was done. However, even though the brownie never did anyone harm, and even though the farmer and his wife valued the brownie's help, their servants and farmhands were still unaccountably afraid of the brownie. In fact, they often took a long, circuitous route from the town to the farm simply to avoid going through the glen. They usually did this during the day, but they always took the long way home at night when there was a greater danger of encountering the brownie. One evening, the farmer's wife took ill, and her condition got quickly worse and worse, 
until the farmer was afraid she would soon die. He realised that the only hope for a cure lay with the old nurse who lived on the other side of the glen. The farmer was loath to leave his wife in her desperate state, so he asked for a servant to go and fetch the nurse. All the servants and farmhands had gathered in the farmhouse, so worried they were about the farmwife. She was kindness itself, and had always treated them more than fairly. She was generous and gentle, and all of them worried about her, and dearly wished for her good health. However, hearing that one of them must ride through the glen at night to fetch the nurse, they were almost paralysed with fright. What if they would meet the fearsome brownie? No, each one said the danger was too great. Perhaps they should wait until daylight. In the meantime, the farmwife became sicker and sicker, and unbeknownst to any of the people at the farmhouse, they were not the only ones who were worried about the good woman. Outside and out of sight stood the brownie himself. He was worried as well, and he became angry when he heard that everyone was saying that they wouldn't dare go through the glen at night. Wait until morning, would they? Not if the brownie could help it. Calling them fools and worse, the brownie determined to go for the nurse himself. But how could he accomplish this? He realised that the old nurse would surely be as afraid of him as the servants were, and she would never agree to go anywhere with him. But he was desperate, and took desperate measures. He snatched the farmer's long brown cloak from a hook by the door, and saddling the farmer's fastest horse he took off through the glen, urging the horse forward as fast as it could go. When he reached the old nurse's house, he rapped on the window, waking the old woman who asked what was wanted. Trying his best to sound like the farmer and pulling the hood of the clock down past his nose, the brownie told the nurse that the farm wife was seriously ill and that her services were needed immediately. The old nurse awoke and agreed to help, but she asked where was the coach the farmer had sent for her. The brownie replied that there was no time for a coach and he instructed the woman to ride behind him on the horse. In spite of her stiff joints, the nurse sensed the urgency of the situation and clambered up behind the brownie. Again he urged the horse forward at such a speed that the nurse had to hold on for their life. When she saw that they were headed through the glen, the nurse called out in fear, What if we should meet the brownie? Now amused, the brownie answered that he could guarantee that they would not be meeting anyone more dangerous than he was. This allayed the nurse's fears, and on they rode. She said, I have nothing to fear at all then. For though I do not know you and have not seen your face, I know you to be a good and kind soul for your care and concern for the good farm wife. They rode on in silence through the glen and into the farmyard. The brownie dismounted and went to lift the old woman down from the horse, but as he did so the cloak slipped a bit, and the woman was startled to see the big ears and webbed feet of the brownie himself. She gasped and asked, What sort of creature are you? In reply he said, We have no time to discuss such nonsense. The good woman within needs your help immediately and you must go to her now. But if anyone should ask, you can tell them that since no one else would go for help, you came here in the company of none other than the Brownie of Fernedin. That's the story of the Brownie of Fernedin. My apologies to any good Scottish people out there offended by my attempt to read it. The moral of that fun story... Be careful about judging based on looks and reputation. The brownie of Fernedon, feared as he was, saved the day. I want to pivot slightly now to another topic related to storytelling and also related to creative processes in general. My hope is to encourage more people to be creative. I'll confess to you that it takes some courage 
to try and read a story with a Scottish accent. In fact, you know, the whole notion of having a storytelling podcast at all sometimes feels very daunting to me. In our very first episode, I explained that a bit, stating that I feel a lot of pressure to get it right when I do something as audacious as start up a podcast called Dan the Story Man. That makes me sound like I'm some kind of expert at all things having to do with storytelling, when in fact, I'm a bit of an amateur, really. Yet I find storytelling incredibly fun and satisfying. My wonderful girlfriend says that I absolutely light up when I talk about this podcast. And yet one of the internal demons that I have to fight on a regular basis is the one that tells me that if I can't do it perfectly, it's not good enough to share with the world. Have you ever felt that before? I want to direct these comments at anyone out there who is considering sharing their own creative work with the world, because sometimes it feels daunting to do that. You might think, you know, how can I share this uh, painting that I made when something that someone else made is so much better? Or how can I publish this story when there are so many better stories being published? Or how can I show anyone this wood carving that I've done when it's clearly so flawed in comparison to other carvings out there? If we can't measure up, we think to ourselves, then it's better to not expose ourselves to ridicule and just keep it to ourselves. <laughs> but to you who think that, and to myself, I share these powerful words from the author Henry Van Dyke. He says, and I'm quoting, Use what talents you possess. The woods would be very silent if no birds sang except those that sang best. Close quote. Isn't that great? I'm a big believer that we really shouldn't die with our music in us. I think God gave each person a magnificent set of talents and abilities, and as pertains to storytelling, for example, we need to tell our stories, no matter how flawed we think they could be, and share our creations, no matter how silly we think they are. The trick is casting aside our comparisons and just doing it. It's hard, I know. I fight this all the time. But we need to put comparison aside and share our gifts. Sometimes the pressure we feel comes as a result of a desire to fit in or to not be perceived as a weirdo, right? I remember one time when I told a close friend that I loved writing and that I thought it would be really fun to be an author. And this dear friend was a very quantitative very skilled, left-brain sort of person, and he just looked at me like I'd grown a third eye and was speechless. That just seemed so impractical to him. And in a world that emphasizes money and numbers and business acumen, that really can seem so impractical to some people. Now, this friend ultimately said something kind about my desire, and then we awkwardly turned the conversation somewhere else. But we've got to cast judgment aside. The world is better when we create. Just earlier this week, so now years having passed since that earlier experience, I said the same thing to a coworker about enjoying writing and enjoying storytelling. And, and I gotta tell you, I'm a data analyst by day, by the way. When I'm not saving Gotham at night, I'm a mild-mannered data analyst during the day, and I kind of expected this good friend, this 
coworker to also look at me like I was crazy, but I was very grateful that he didn't, but he encouraged me to do the things that I loved and to share my talents. I'm still trying to get over what I think is the stigma and vulnerability of liking artistic things and sharing my talents, but my friends, we've got to do it. It improves our own sense of worth and satisfaction, and it honestly makes the world a much better, more satisfying, more diverse, fulfilling, wonderful place. Author and researcher Brene Brown, if you know who that is, reminds us, I'm quoting her, she says, there's risk involved in putting your true self out in the world, but I believe there's even more risk in hiding yourself and your gifts from the world. Close quote. Even if your talent isn't what you do for a living, don't shy away from owning it and sharing it and developing it. It doesn't have to be what you do for a living necessarily for it to give satisfaction to you and to provide some beauty for the world. Brene Brown goes on to tell this great story, and I'm again quoting her. So, quote, I recently met a woman, she says, at a social media conference who is an accountant slash jeweler. I was excited to meet her because I had bought a beautiful pair of earrings from her online. When I asked her how long she had been a jeweler, she blushed and said, I wish I'm a CPA. I'm not a real jeweler. Brene Brown says, I thought to myself, I'm wearing your earrings right now, not your abacus. I pointed to my ears, she says, and I said, of course you're a jewelry maker. Close quote. Don't you love that? I think one of the best things that we can do for each other is to believe in and support the work that makes each other really come alive. Do you want to make a difference in the lives of your children, you parents out there? Find out what your kids love to do. Give them a chance to do it and believe in them while they do it and see what happens. Do you want to find some greater joy in your own life? Do that thing that you've been putting off but that you've always wanted to do but were too nervous to do. Make the world a little bit better by sharing your talents. Benjamin Franklin says, why would you put a, you wouldn't put a sundial in the shade Right? Use your talents. They for use were made. What's a sundial in the shade? Right? And, and Brene Brown, again, says this, and I'm quoting her. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive, and then go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Close quote. Anyway, the point of all of that To those of you who may be aspiring storytellers out there, tell your stories. And if you're not a storyteller, whatever it is you do, do it. Make the world a little bit better. That's our episode for today, my friends. Thanks for being here. It is always good to have you. If you enjoy the podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Dan the Story Man wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, we're developing our presence on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so if if you're on those, take a minute and like or subscribe to our pages on those platforms. Look for the handle, at Storyman Podcast. Again, that's the handle, at Storyman Podcast, and that's on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And share with your friends, too. We love that. 
Also, don't forget my friends over at the Somewhat Original Podcast. Go check them out as well if you get a chance. You won't regret it. That's all for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Dan the Story Man. Stay awesome. Until next time.